When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast, the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Right, well, let's talk about, uh, well, someone who de- definitely like us uh, not to continue to be talking about this, but uh, uh, obviously it's been in the eye of the storm throughout this, and that's uh, Northern Ireland's uh, DUP MP and uh, Brexit spokesman, Sammy Wilson. Good morning to you, Sammy. Good morning. Good morning. It's been a very long time since we spoke to you. At one point, it was, you know, regular, very regular basis because Northern Ireland was in the eye of the storm, wasn't it? Um, have you yeah. been sold down the river? Well, first of all, we believe that the withdrawal agreement deal which was signed last uh, autumn, did sell us down the river. It separated Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom, and it is going to have huge economic impacts. Now, over the period of time since then, we have been working with the government, government ministers, speaking to members of parliament, new members of parliament, spelling out the consequences, not just for Northern Ireland, by the way, because don't forget, the Northern Ireland Protocol was the means by which the EU got its foot in the door to interfere in economic policy right across the United Kingdom through the so-called state aid provisions in the Northern Ireland Protocol, whereby the government was not going to be able to give any support, use tax policies, economic policies, regional policies to help firms in England, Scotland or Wales if those firms traded or potentially would trade with Northern Ireland. And, of course, that's what the EU wanted. Make sure the, the, the government in the United Kingdom has its hands tied when it comes to economic policy. And we've been driving that message home. And I haven't seen the provisions of the bill, which is coming to the House of Commons tomorrow. But I hope that some of those issues are going to be addressed and some of the damage which has been done by the withdrawal agreement will be undone. I mean, this is the thing. This is, of course, the internal market bill to be uh, published uh, or tabled uh, tomorrow. And again, we haven't seen the details of this, uh, but there is some talk that this is effectively going to uh, sort of delete parts of the withdrawal agreement that had been agreed with the EU. Number 10 have said it's just minor clarifications in extremely specific areas. But uh, as we know, as what happened with the withdrawal agreement, the Boris signed compared with what Theresa May had signed, that a, a minor clarification in an extremely specific area is it can be 
the difference between getting it over the line and not getting it over the line. Um, do you think that this is number 10 waking up to the fudge that, that was the withdrawal agreements handling of Northern Ireland? Or do you think, well, they've always known, they've known exactly what the situation is, but now they're just using it to their advantage in a different way to their, how they handled it last year? I think they've always known the defects of the withdrawal agreement. I think they've always known as well the implications which it has for our independence as a nation from the European Union. And they have known that it's been a Trojan horse used by the European Union to keep influence in the United Kingdom long after we have left the EU. Um, whether or not they remedy all of these defects or whether the government goes for and uses the same tactic as it did last year. A lot of rhetoric, lots of promises, tough talking, and then at the end of the day, continuing to do a deal with the EU, which is less than leaving the EU, I'm not so sure. But we, we will be keeping an eye out. Uh, and I think that Conservative MPs and Brexiteers should be keeping an eye out for what exactly the government does do in the final analysis. Do they give in to the EU on fishing? Do they give in to the EU on the level playing field? Do they give in to the EU on state aid issues? Um and try and fudge it as they did with the withdrawal agreement. Uh, because don't forget, Boris Johnson really, uh, although he railed against the uh, May deal, uh, in the end of the day, signed the same kind of deal last autumn and tried to uh, present it as something totally different. Now, of course, um, that th the defects of it are becoming more apparent and becoming more widespread. I hope that he's going to try and address some of them. He's not addressing all of them. Um, because there will still be checks at ports in Northern Ireland, but he has it's been suggested anyway he will address some of the, the the problems which the withdrawal agreement causes, and we'll be keeping an eye out for that. Well, one of the other worries we have, of course, is that there's no intention of changing the withdrawal agreement at all. This is simply another bargaining yeah. ploy, and Northern Ireland's being cynically used. We will only know that. Once, first of all, we see the terms of the deal and then set uh, the terms of the bill, sorry, and then see how it's used yeah. in future negotiations. I mean, this, to a certain extent, I mean, and again, I mean, I've got a lot of sympathy for your position, but I was someone who was in favour of you know getting Brexit over the line and I, we'll, we'll deal with everything afterwards, because kind of my view, um, which was that, you know, to a certain extent, Northern Ireland was always going to have to be in, in a fudge because we had this issue about having any, any sort of customs arrangements, any customs forms or, or anything, or in future, who knows, tariffs were going between um, uh, Northern Ireland and mainland Britain or between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland because you uniquely having the only uh, land border between the UK and the EU, it was always going to be complicated because of the history of the island of Ireland uh, and the need to not, not have a hard border there and all the threats that went on about uh, the return of the Troubles, which I always thought were, were grossly exaggerated. I thought really it was outrageous people to even suggest that was an issue. Um, but, but do you Except that there was always going to have to be an element of a fudge, or or, or do you feel, as you say, you know, you certainly said Northern Ireland has been forgotten in all of this and just been used as a bargaining chip? Well, I didn't accept that there had to be an element of fudge. I mean, first of all, we're either part of the United Kingdom or we're not. Secondly, 
there, there was either a problem along the border or there wasn't. And we have always argued that there were means by which the border could have been dealt with. The mutual enforcement of rules by uh, the EU on the Irish side of the border, British rules on the Irish side of the border, and uh, um, EU rules on the, the Northern Ireland side of the border is one solution which would have worked and indeed which we have been arguing uh, still should be contemplated. And indeed the Brexit, the Centre for Brexit policy did an excellent uh, paper on how that could work. And it was written by people who were EU experts who had worked for the EU, who had worked on border controls for the EU and who had shown how it could work. And I probably don't have time to go into it in this uh, programme, but there, there are means by which the Irish border could have been dealt with. The important thing, as far as we're concerned, was the integrity of the UK, um, first of all, constitutionally and economically. And indeed, the whole point of the bill tomorrow is to talk about the UK internal market. And yet we're almost like an annex to the UK internal market. And the the act of union with Scotland and um, with Northern Ireland was as much about the economics of the uh, UK as it was about the constitutional arrangements within the UK. Okay, well, uh, no doubt we will speak to you again many times over the next five weeks. Sammy Wilson, DUP MPs, also their Chief Whip and their Brexit spokesman. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, It's coming up to 7.14. Let's now talk to Maddie Timont-Jack, who's Senior Researcher on the Brexit team at the Institute for Government. Good morning to you, Maddie. Good morning. Um, I think an awful lot of people trying to get about their daily lives, sorting themselves out, coming out of lockdown, kids going back to school and things, would be forgiven for not uh, getting to grips with what the nuances are of this eighth round of talks uh, today on Brexit. Michel Barnier in London uh, dealing with Lord David Frost. Um, This whole issue over the internal market bill and whether or not uh, the withdrawal agreement is rewritten or not, it's, it's pretty complicated technical stuff. This Can you try and make some sense of it for not just my listeners, but myself as well? (laughs) <laughs> sure. Um, as you say, it is pretty complicated. And I mean, you've raised sort of two separate issues there, really. There's the one the one hand, the negotiations ongoing with the EU and on the other, the internal market bill. So I guess if, if we just start with the negotiations, this is the eighth round of negotiations. So they have been in talks since earlier this year. And we haven't publicly anyway seen really a breakthrough on any of those key areas. Um, and Sammy Wilson's already mentioned some of them, but fisheries and state aid in particular have become big sticking points and I think uh, the sort of message from the EU now is very much to the UK if you are you know willing to get a deal then you need to compromise and we have actually seen some movement from the EU on these issues so on fisheries for example originally the EU wanted to sort of maintain the the sort of quota access for EU fishers in the UK waters after we leave and now there seems to be a bit of suggestion they're willing to talk about that that's Um, nice of them you know, you can, you can argue that you were being unreasonable to start with, but that is negotiations. You sort yeah. of start at the first point and then you row back a bit. Um, and then on the other the other big issue on state aid, you know, originally the EU said, you know, the UK will have to follow EU rules in the areas of subsidising businesses and, and other areas. Um, and, and basically now, again, you could argue that was pretty unreasonable to start with because we weren't looking for as close a relationship with the EU. Um, but now the EU have basically said, look, just tell us what you're planning to do with subsidies after after the end of the year and then we can work out where we can but, but isn't, land. isn't the whole point of Brexit it's not a 
comment on business, I think, as we as Brexit voters would say. But in terms of what Number 10 call minor clarifications in extremely specific areas, that's what a source has said in terms of uh, this, what they want to do to the withdrawal agreement. What would be the, the, the effect of what they want to do? Well, as you've already mentioned, we, we haven't seen the bill, so it's not entirely clear. But the suggestion seems to be that ministers want to take powers that would, for example, allow them to set a state aid regime which would cover Northern Ireland as well. Whereas, again, as, as Sammy Wilson's just said, the withdrawal agreement does say that, that the EU will have a role in overseeing any state aid that applies to Northern Ireland. Um, the other thing that they sort of seem to mention is this question of exit summary declarations. And this is basically paperwork yeah. that Northern Ireland businesses yeah. or, or people trading from Northern Ireland into Great Britain would have to fill out to comply with EU rules around customs trade. And so it seems like the UK government wants to say and to sort of unilaterally decide that that won't be necessary anymore and I think from the EU perspective that's something that should be agreed with the EU and not just done themselves and and those are those talks within the joint committee which is separate from the Brexit negotiations happening this week the joint committee is oversees the withdrawal agreement but because on that issue of you know there being paperwork i.e so that as sammy wilson says that separation between northern ireland and great britain and in terms of the mainland um saying well you know of course you, you wouldn't have paperwork between wales and england why would you have uh, paperwork between uh, northern ireland and the rest of the uk if you're part of the uk uh, but of course this is what an awful lot of people were pointing out last year remainers and brexit is that that is what the withdrawal agreement uh, uh, would, would amount to we shall wait and see and watch this space maddie thank you very much indeed a valiant attempt <laughs> to explain Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Be well informed. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, let's talk to Dr. Mark Harris. He's a professor of virology at the University of Leeds. So um, I'm guessing he knows more than both of us and probably more than the government. Good morning to you, Mark. Good morning. Good morning. Lovely to talk to you. So um, is, it, uh, is it sort of affluent young people who are responsible for spreading the virus? And, and should they be listening because they're in danger of killing their grandparents? Well, I think we're all in danger of spreading the virus if we get infected. So I mean, affluent young people are, are part of the problem. But 
we are all part of the problem, I guess. So we all need to adhere to the rules about social distancing, about wearing masks, about maintaining our hand hygiene. And I think if people don't do that, then the virus is going to transmit. And we're seeing that already. I mean, you can see if you go into a city centre now. I saw I had an example the other day when I was in a restaurant. I saw a group of people getting together. They clearly had just met, you know, hadn't met for a long time. They were hugging and kissing like uh, like there was no pandemic. So, you know, if, if that's the sort of behaviour that people are going to, uh, are going to, you know, that's how they're living their lives, then this virus is going to keep transmitting, I'm afraid. Yeah, and that's the thing so I find quite frustrating because I, I desperately want life to be as normal as possible. And, you know, I've yeah, been back sure. at work, my yeah. daughter's back at school, my husband's now back in the office most of the week and, uh, and we're, you know, trying to live life as normal as possible, frankly, just in case there is another lockdown so we get as much of normal mm-hmm. life. But again, we, you know, we we met up with friends on Friday night outdoors in their garden um, and and no one was hugging and kissing. And in fact, there was someone there who, who who's actually, you know, got a wife who's shielding. And so we were, you sure. know, we were being yeah. extra careful and we you know we had food, but, you know, everyone had separate, you know, very much separate place. And and it was done, I mean, not in a sort of a overly anxious way. No, none of us is anxious. It was more a sort of being respectful to other people and, you know, not knowing if other people were anxious. And um, and it, it just seemed to me that you, you can have a really, you can get, you know, 90% of the way to having a, a normal life as long as you just don't do the touching and you do the hand washing and, and you, you where possible, have the window open or be outdoors. And and this makes a massive difference. And, and it's not necessary to sort of do, you know, either completely in lockdown or or completely you know acting as if life's completely normal yeah you're absolutely right if everyone stick to those rules then we would be in a much better position but of course we're, we're coming into a winter season when it's not going to be so pleasant to be outside everyone's going to be indoors and if you had those sort of gatherings people are going to be want to to be inside together and of course that increases the risk of transmission and we're about to see a million students travel across the, the country and, and meet up at universities where they're going to live and work together 24-7. And, you know, we all know what campus life is about, really. It's not just about teaching and learning. It's yeah. about having a good time, social social aspects as well. And it's going to be very, very difficult to, to, to control that. I mean, I'm really even, quite worried about yeah, it. Yeah, even with all the rules. I mean, there's been talk about possibility of having mass mm-hmm. testing of all students. And again, whether we've even got the capacity for that, you've got to wonder. Um, we're up to almost 3,000 cases the second day running, although a slight drop yesterday on the day before. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is compared to, we get back to mid-July. So we, we've come out of lockdown. The pubs have already opened, but we're at 350 uh, cases a day again our, our, our testing has gone up since then but not massively uh, so we are we, we are seeing a, a higher it's not just it's not just that we're doing more testing we're getting a higher proportion of those being tested who are coming up with the virus and of course we do a lot of community testing of people without symptoms just going house to house just to uh, to see you know where this virus is um, and and we are looking at a rate now of 21 cases per 100,000 a week ago it was just under 14 cases per 100,000 we are in in the yeah. territory where we would be thinking about imposing quarantine on ourselves, wouldn't, aren't we? If we were yeah. if we were another country, and that's the concern. Um, but l- people like Professor Carl Hennigan, who's professor of the um, evidence-based medicine at Oxford, he's been writing quite a lot about how actually you know we don't know how accurate these virus tests are, and so some of these antigen. We know we had problems with the antibody tests, but also he says the antigen tests that actually a lot of them are, are pretty inaccurate. They may well be finding people who have had the virus; they've got traces, particles of the of the uh, the virus, but they're not actually infectious. They're not actually uh, at risk to anybody or themselves, um, and that's often what we may be finding right now, and that we don't actually have a 
a, a way of verifying whether whether that you know that's that's what's being tested or not and, and that what he says would explain why we are not seeing that rise in hospitalizations because we the the graphs which show number of infections number of hospitalizations number of deaths they were running you know alongside each other uh, at the beginning of the the pandemic they are completely opposite right now. We are seeing, I mean, a tiny, tiny increase in hospitalizations, despite a large increase in infections. What does that tell you? Well, I think it, it tells us a couple of things. I mean, I think for, first, Carl Hennigan is right that the, the test is inaccurate. I mean, it's, it's the best we've got at the moment. Mm. We, are, we are detecting people who are infected. I think my concern is more that there's a lot of people out there who are infected who we're not detecting, either we're not testing because there's still problems with the testing system. Despite six months of trying to get that system working, we still have problems with it. Um, So so there are people out there who are asymptomatic, might not have any symptoms, but they will be potentially transmitting the virus. I think the issue with the death death rate is, is perhaps more easy to explain because it is more young people who are getting infected now because of their lifestyle, because of the fact that they're getting the transmission is, is within groups of young people. Many, many older people like myself, like you, like older people are still shielding or perhaps more careful with their lifestyle. So they're less likely to get infected. Yeah. And that's why we're seeing a drop in the number of deaths, which is a good thing, of course. But it means that the virus is still out there. The potential is for it to, to transmit to the older generation students coming home from university student you know potentially transmitting it to their to their parents to their grandparents and Matt Hancock is actually right in this instance that this this is that this is about protecting other people yeah. as well as protecting uh, yourself as as a, as a lot of it realistically was but again you know young people feel that you know they're not at risk and and they and realistically they really aren't i mean even you know your 50s 60s yeah, even in yeah. your 70s frankly if you catch it if you're in your 80s you, you are you have a 90 percent chance of 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 doing just fine thank you very much and, and that's that's the difficulty yeah. um do you do you think that um there there should be measures to go back into some version of lockdown uh, in, in, the, in the coming weeks if this continues to rise? I very much hope that we won't have to do that because it was very hard on everybody when we're in lockdown. And I, I'm not sure that we can any of us can cope with that for another long period of time. And, and not during the winter either, months either, as well. Yeah, mentally or for the economy either. So I think we have to find a way by which we can reduce the transmission of this virus. Mm. I think what we have to do is we have to accept that the numbers will go up. Yeah. And we have to we have to come to a, an, an agreement with ourselves that we are going to see an increase in the number of cases, but we can deal with that because we can we can control it. You know, we yeah. can't see it go out out of control and spiral out of control. Yeah, so absolutely. I think we, there is no such thing as zero risk. We have to accept that the cases will go up as we as we start to socialize again, as the economy starts to move again. But that's a it's a it's a consequence of what we're going to have to do because we can't go back into lockdown completely. No, I mean I, have to say, I just don't think the British people will put up with it. I'm really I'm really not sure I, I I would put up with it, especially during the winter months. It's one thing when you had a little sunshine coming through the window, but I think uh, uh, long dark days. I think people are going to feel very very differently about it. Uh, Seven thirty is the time. Huge thanks, to Dr. Mark Harris. At... Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer and the Times. Know your Times. Uh, first up, though, uh, let's talk about a boost for getting an affordable home with a Robert Jenrick, who's the Housing Communities and Local Government Secretary. And he joins us now. Good morning to you. 
Hi, good morning, Julie. Good morning. Obviously, there's lots to talk about when it comes to viruses and uh, Brexit as well. Uh, but let's start with talking about homes because this is such a big issue uh, for an awful lot of people. Uh, and uh, you've got a pledge to spend £11.5 billion to build up to 180,000 discounted homes over the next five years to help first-time buyers. First question, I suppose, is how much are they discounted by? Well, absolutely. We're going to be building up to 180,000 homes to help people on modest incomes to get secure housing. There'll be at least three different types. There'll be some which are social rent. And for those, you'll get a discount of 50 to 60 percent off the local private rental market. There'll be some which are called affordable rent. And there you get a 20 percent discount off the local uh, housing market. So still significant. And then there'll be some about 50 percent, which will be available for shared ownership. And that enables you to get a stake in your home. You can purchase the sake of uh, as little as 10% and increase that in increments as low as 1% with the remainder of the property being owned by a social landlord or a housing association who you're paying again a discounted rent to. So we've tried to think of a range of different options to help people to get a foot on the housing ladder if they want to purchase or to rent at an affordable rate. It's, it's not often I say this, but this does actually look affordable. We had we got used to George Osborne's idea of people being able to afford, you know, 450 grand homes, which is outside the uh, ability of anybody or on, on a normal average income and, and many people on much higher incomes as well. We are, we are looking about deposits in some of these schemes, shared ownership as little as 1,550 and a household income uh, of around £30,000 a year to cover housing costs. So actually affordable for ordinary people living ordinary lives in ordinary jobs, which is a big change. Um, why has it taken so long for the government to come up with a scheme like this? I mean, I, mean, I know you're in Boris Johnson's government, but of course, the you know, Tories have been in power for 10 years now. We've had lots and lots of different schemes. None of them seem to have actually you know, addressed this issue of you know, ordinary people on, on, you know, in, in new, normal jobs trying to get on the housing ladder. Well, we've had a range of different schemes in the past. We had the Help to Buy scheme, for example, which has helped hundreds of thousands of people onto the housing ladder, first-time buyers who would have struggled otherwise. We've had affordable homes programmes in the past, but you're right that on this time, we've tried to think very carefully about how we can help people on the lowest incomes. We have a greater proportion of these homes for social rent than ever before. That's where you're getting the 50 or 60% reduction on what a private landlord uh, would be charging you. And the shared ownership model, we've really looked at that. That's existed for many years. It was created in the 1980s. But we've looked at it and tried to make it as consumer friendly as possible. So whereas in the past, you would have had to be increasing your equity stake in your home in increments of 10%, which is a lot. You know, it's not often that people can afford to do that. Mm. Now you can do it, uh, as you say, for as low as £1,000. So we think this is much easier for people to get onto the housing ladder and then if their circumstances allow, slowly increase their equity stake, hopefully one day becoming you know, full homeowners of that property. OK, and we must point out, though, this isn't new money. This is some funding that was announced in the last budget as part of the uh, the house building programme. But I mean, I can think a lot of people are going to welcome that this morning. What a lot of people aren't welcoming, though, Robert Jenrick, uh, is the latest uh, set of figures when it comes to the virus, the uh, coronavirus. We are looking now uh, having a, a rate of 21,000 infections uh, per 100,000. Just a week ago, it was about 14 per 100,000. And are we going to have to put ourselves on the quarantine list? Well, look, the, the, um, the, the rate of the virus is, is um, increasing. It's a cause for concern. Um, we all need to follow the, the guidance, you know, the simple things in our daily lives, like washing our hands, uh, wearing masks, 
staying socially distanced where we can. This is a cautionary tale, really, that if we don't want to see uh, a return to wider restrictions, we've got to be very careful, uh, particularly younger people, where we are seeing a rise in the number of cases. And whilst, of course, it's unlikely that they will become seriously unwell themselves, they can pass it on to others. And so we're asking them to exercise particular caution. That doesn't mean stopping going to work. It doesn't mean stopping going to school or to university or not using pubs, restaurants and cafes. But when you're doing so, following those guidance, and of course, all of those uh, businesses and organisations are going to a huge amount of trouble to make sure that their workplaces and settings are COVID secure so that we can do that. But so a lot of people on Twitter this morning were asking people about this sort of don't kill your granny uh, message from Matt Hancock, the health secretary, your colleague. Uh, a lot of people quite cross about that and saying, look, this is scaremongering and, you know, let granny decide whether she wants to see her her, her grandchildren or not and, and on what basis. But there's a lot of people saying that there there is this sort of uh, uh, this, this uh, difficulty of the contrast of go out, spend money, we'll pay you some taxpayers' money to spend money in a pub and a restaurant, go back to work, get on public transport, do all that, live life uh, you know, almost as normally as possible, but at the same time, don't take any risks. A lot of people find it quite difficult to navigate that. Do you think this is a problem of the government's communication? Uh, that, uh, you know, look, some risks are worth taking. We need to get back to work. Other risks, like going to a rave, hugging, hugging random people in the pub, not worth the risk. Do you think this is down to the government's communication? It was really simple when it was stay home, save lives. We all knew what to do then. We stayed home. Um, but, but if the government could, could actually get a clearer message about what is and what is not safe. Do you not think that would save more lives? Well, in the early stages of the pandemic, you're right, there was a very simple message, but we're in a different phase of it now. We need to have a much more balanced uh, message, and that's one where it is safe to go out and do all the things you've just described, but you've got to do so whilst exercising good judgment. And there's risks in every aspect of our lives. We, as a government, need to ensure that people are fully appraised and can make those judgments themselves and follow the relatively simple guidance about washing hands, wearing a face mask, being socially distant, etc., in order to ensure that when you're going about those daily uh, tasks and activities, you're doing so safely. And the particular message that we, we have for younger people is just be careful about how you're interacting with elderly relatives and others, being cognizant of the fact that whilst the risk to you is very low, the risk is somewhat higher to older people. But that doesn't mean not seeing your parents or your grandparents, but it does mean being careful when you're around them. But, but, and if you want to be socially, you know, if you, if you can be socially distanced, then that obviously is helpful. I mean, there was huge focus, on, wasn't there, about getting millions of children back to school, but actually it's a million plus students heading off to university. That is the real concern now. The rate of uh, spread of the virus among people in their 20s is, is the highest rate at the moment. Heading back, you know, people travelling not just to two roads away to school, but travelling across the country to university. There's a big concern there. Do you think that we should move towards using our capacity for testing for mass testing? of students on a regular basis? Uh, well, there are, you know, there is uh, enough tests around now. So if you need a test because well, you've got symptoms... that's not what a lot of people will, trying to you, get tests are saying. Well, you, you know, if you have symptoms, you can get a test. And there's mobile testing units as well, uh, particularly focused on areas where there's a higher rate of the virus. Um, but the, the message to students is to follow the guidance. Uh, universities themselves have gone to a great deal of trouble to prepare for uh, their new entry and the return of students, uh, putting students into bubbles, for example, ensuring uh, that lectures where possible are done remotely uh, and so on. But when you're not in the university setting, when you're out socialising, 
just be very careful uh, to follow the guidance okay. because, you know, whilst the risk to you is low, the risk to the rest of society is somewhat higher. Let's talk about risks and Brexit. Uh, many are concerned that we are going to leave the end of the transition period with the EU post-Brexit uh, on the 31st of December without a trade deal. Boris Johnson has given this deadline of the 15th of October, just five weeks. Uh, Michel Barnier, the EU chief negotiator, arriving for the eighth round of talks with uh, Lord Frost uh, today. Um, lots of concern, that though, that uh, in trying to get a trade deal, Boris Johnson is throwing Northern Ireland under a bus. Absolutely not. Uh, in fact, he's doing the opposite. The uh, internal market bill that we'll be publishing tomorrow ensures that ministers have the ability, if necessary, to preserve the internal market of the United Kingdom, to ensure that there can be unfettered access between GB and Northern Ireland, just as we want to ensure that there is between Northern Ireland and the Republic. That's the promise that the prime minister as a unionist made to both sides uh, in Northern Ireland last year, that we will respect the peace process and that we'll do everything to ensure uh, that we can respect and maintain our obligations under the Good Friday Agreement. We hope that we can still secure uh, the kind of arrangements that Canada uh, has access to. We think that that deal is still within reach. If the EU uh, are flexible and realistic this week and in the, in the, in the weeks to come before the crucial deadline of October the 15th. But if that's not possible, then the transition period will end and we'll continue trading with our friends and partners in the EU under terms similar to that exercised by Australia. But what we don't want to do is do anything that might compromise us uh, with the peace process. And so that's why we're taking these powers as a sensible backup option. OK, and if you had to put money on it right now, um, odds on it, uh, what do you think about the chances of getting uh, what well, leaving with a free trade deal of some sort by the end of the year? Well, I think it's hanging in the balance and that very much now depends on the actions taken by Michel Barnier and the European Union. A deal is there. There's a clear precedent with Canada. It could be secured swiftly. But if it isn't, if that's not possible, if they're not willing uh, to move their position on the few remaining issues, then, as I say, we will leave on the same terms that many other developed countries have and use to trade successfully with the European Union and other parts of the world and will okay. be a sovereign nation again exercising all of the control that people voted for in the referendum. Housing Secretary Robert Jedrick, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.